0: Thank you for your singing this morning, as we open the word, if you again, just as a reminder, as only once a month do we partake of the lord 's table, I want to encourage you to superintend your heart, to ask God by His spirit through the Word, to prepare you if you 're a christian, a baptized uh, believer in the Lord Jesus, to superintend your heart, that you might receive uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, in a worthy manner. Well, you know that it is, a, it is a signature of fallen human nature, not original human nature, that often we will not listen. We are stubborn as mules. We are swollen with pride like a river with the runoff of melting spring snow. We are arrogant. We are stiff-necked as the children of Israel. We are as unteachable as the worst know-it-all you can imagine. Maybe you can think of your own know-it-all moments." You're unmalleable, or maybe even as unyielding as winter in the far north of Canada. We need to hear. We need to listen. And we've forgotten that proportion, that the proportion of two ears to one mouth should give an obvious lesson. It's James' admonition. Know this, he says, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and yet it has not penetrated us and affected us effectively. And so this morning as we come and we think of Yahweh in his own words, I want to remind you what A.W. Tozer said. He said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing About you. Let me say that again. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And when you and I find Yahweh in His own words speaking for Himself, these are the most important words that we possess. And you know what this looks like in brevity. You meet someone and you say, Tell me about you. You go into the doctor, you're in the exam room, the doctor comes in. And it's a simple question. What's wrong? What's going on? And here God, with his chance to speak in his own words, gives us all of two verses. And these are what we must give heed to this morning. Be careful someone has said how you listen. And they are God's words all over the Old Testament. It's very interesting. The priority in the Old Testament is not our speaking, but our listening. And it's Yahweh's clarion call to his people. So how do we find Yahweh in his own words in this passage? My outline is this, and it's simple. Number one, in verses 1 through 9, is Yahweh's character revealed? Yahweh's character revealed. And I'll repeat these if you're taking notes. Secondly, in verses 10 through 16, is Yahweh's covenant renewed? Renewed. I'm actually just borrowing there from the heading in the ESV Bible on page 74. Fourthly, Yahweh's commands repeated in verses 17 through 28. Not an exhaustive repetition, but a sampling of repetition. And then fourth, Yahweh's servant foreshadowed in verses 29 through 35. So verse, Yahweh's character revealed... Revealed, secondly, Yahweh's covenant renewed, thirdly, Yahweh's commands, or you might say his words, the ten words repeated, and fourth and final, Yahweh's servant, foreshadowed. It's Paul David Tripp as we think of Yahweh's character revealed. Paul David Tripp says that the sermon we preach to ourselves is actually the most important sermon we'll hear because nobody talks to us more than we do all right? And it's interesting this morning that actually we have a convergence of three sermons, if you'll think about this. It's my sermon with God's sermon, and then when we take the Lord's table together, Paul says we proclaim his death before he comes. And so if someone says, what did you do on Father's Day morning? You can say you won't believe it. In 45 minutes, I heard three sermons, okay? That's what happened. But I'm sure if we would yield on this point, Paul David Tripp's axiom notwithstanding, we would say that in Yahweh's self-speech, we find the most important sermon of all in his own sermon proclamation in verses 6 and 7. I'm sure some of you are thinking, why don't you take a clue and shorten your sermons? If he could do it in two verses, can't you do better? And as you know, these are our memory verses for the month of June as we recited earlier together as a body. The Lord had granted Moses' prayer for God to accompany him and the children of Israel on the way from Sinai to the Promised Land. You can look at the top of page 74, upper left. It said, and he said, here it is, in response to Moses' intercession to Moses' mediating activity, he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But Moses desired a guarantee. And I think some of you understand that. you like, and you want to say, I, you know, I swear to you on a stack of rocks or something like this. Moses wanted more. Like God, you're going to have to put some money down on this. He says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Chapter 33 and verse 16. And there's this simple thing. This is it. He says, God, here's all I'm asking of you. Please show me your glory. That was Moses' request to the Lord in chapter 33, verse 18. Maybe some of you men for Father's Day could say to your wife, this is all I want to eat on Father's Day, right? A ribeye steak, a rack of ribs, it doesn't matter. You say it. You know, whatever is your pleasure. Just that one thing. And Moses says, please now, Lord, show me your glory. That's the guarantee he desired. What was God's response? Look at it there. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Think about this. Moses wanted a show of glory, and the Lord promised, in response, all his goodness. Moses desired a display of glory, and the Lord offered a sermon. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And so Yahweh preached. This is the day that God preached. He made all his goodness, and yes, we may apply that to all these verses, both these verses, all these attributes, all the words of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He made it All his goodness passed before Moses while he protected him in the cleft of the rock that he might not perish by the very sight of God's face. But what are we left with? With what he preached. And on the surface of it, but an exposition of this covenant name of God, Yahweh. Those four capital letters, L-O-R-D, that the Hebrew people were so hesitant and feared to say, would say, Adonai instead. This was the name that God used when he revealed himself to Moses out of that burning bush in Exodus 3 to say, I am who I am. Or you might see there in the footnotes, I am what I am or I will be what I will be. But it was in Yahweh's sermon in just two verses that his self-speech revealed him in the full breadth of his character. And you might think of it this way. Think under these three headings, mercy, truth, and justice. God's mercy, God's truth, and God's justice. And out of the gate, he is a God merciful and gracious. It must be our confession to him, it must be our mutual confession to one another. In the moment when we want to whine and say, I don't deserve this, that our confession, our profession is, no, actually, he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He has dealt with us in this unfathomable, unthinkable, unreachable, yet to a degree knowable goodness and tenderness. For he's given us his son. He's patient. He's literally long in the nose, is what it means in the Hebrew. He's slow to anger. He's not flaring his nostrils in this hair trigger disappointment, irritation, and rage like we as human fathers are so prone at times to do. Where sometimes, even without a word, by our body language or our tone of voice, gives us away. Not our Heavenly Father, not the God of Israel. He's exceedingly great. Kids, you know this. There's a great fish in the Bible. It's the whale that swallowed Jonah. And that word for great is the same word for abounding. So whenever you now read Exodus 34, 6, and 7, it's okay for you to think of a great whale as you read that God, the Lord, the Lord, is great, is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness or truth. And this, these two words when you hear steadfast love, his kesed, it's, it's the love that he has for his people where nothing and no one can snatch us out of his hands. Like a baby that's latched onto its mother's breast, nothing will rip it away from her. She will give her life for the life of Of her baby and so will Yahweh. For his covenant people. That's God. And so these two. As I read. In our call to worship from Psalm 85. These two attributes. His steadfast love and faithfulness. Are a combination of two perfectly paired divine attributes. Like two foods that make a complete protein. Put it this way. Let me give you a way to think of these together. He is for his people, and therefore, he is there for his people. He's not just ooey-gooey, squishy love, as Pastor Jamie says, sloppy agape. But he's like that person that is money in the bank, When you call them up at 11 o'clock at night and say, I can't tell you why, but will you be at the house at six in the morning and have $2,000 in cash for me? I can't tell you why, but I need you to stand with me in my most urgent need. I'll tell you everything when you get here. And you know that you know that you know that at 6 a.m. they'll be at your door and there'll be twenty one dollars bills for you. He is a God of steadfast love. He is for his covenant people. But he is a God of faithfulness. Therefore, he is there for his people. Like a nut that has been cinched so tight on a bolt is God for you. He cannot be removed from his covenant love for you. He's there for his people. Those two words together occur 14 times in the Old Testament. As this stock in trade phrase, to embed your faith. Listen to me. These two words are intended as a stock in phrase trade of two divine attributes. To embed your faith in a lake of concrete when you look out and all you can see is quicksand in every direction. That's what it's like. But God will not be toyed with. He will not be made a mockery of by your rebellion. So we see mercy, we see truth, but we see justice. He says, by no means will he clear the guilty. And in the Hebrew, he could not state this with any greater words of force. And you might ask, Why did God allow sin? Do some of you ever wonder, why did God allow sin in a world that he created? How is it that when the Lord told Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now think about this. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and then God is going to speak of iniquity and visiting that iniquity even to the third and fourth generation of the Father's. How is it that there's goodness here, but then God holds forth his justice and the judgment that he will bring to sin? Listen to Dr. John MacArthur here. Pastor Jamie found this quote for me. As he helps us understand that the allowance of sin in the world is in no way a contradiction with God's glory displayed in all his attributes. And I quote, Dr. John MacArthur, why did God allow sin? He says, and the broad answer to the question is, he allowed sin for his glory. That's the reason he does everything. And God desired to put his full glory on display. And in order for God to put his full glory on display and to display all his attributes, he had to then display His compassion, His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness, His kindness. And in order to display all of that panoply, that is from every corner, right? From every corner of all the attributes that make up God, when we ask, what is God like? Dr. MacArthur says there had to be sin. With no sin, there's no mercy. With no sin, there's no grace. With no sin, there's no forgiveness. With no sin and its consequences, consequences, there's no compassion. There's no loving kindness. So in order for God to display the full range of his eternal attributes, God allowed sin so that he could put his glory on display. And what could Moses do in response to this display of goodness and glory? He tells us in verses eight and nine. You see it there. He worships. And then he offers this final, leaving it all on the table, intercession. He says, oh, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. The Lord's already told him this. It's as though he is short-term memory loss. But he prays it yet one more time. He's so conscious now after God's, self-proclamation that he needs God's presence. He needs this God to accompany him and the people of Israel. Well, we see secondly in verses 10 through 16, Yahweh's covenant is renewed. Not only does the Lord reveal himself in his character to Moses, but he renews the covenant. And by this I mean to emphasize just three things. Briefly, in this section, in verses 10 through 16. And I think it's very helpful that when you understand first, he's infallibly committed to do marvelous things for his people. And it's different than what he will do for any other nation and any other people. And so, young person, if you're thinking, I'm not sure about this Christianity thing, I sort of want to be a Christian, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure about taking that step of faith. God says that what he does for his people is unique. We have his presence. We have him. This is the God after all who promises his steadfast love and faithfulness will visit, whether it's a thousand, thousands of people or a thousand generations And Cheryl was telling me maybe that's 30,000 years at 30 years per generation. However you see that text, however we would understand that, that's contrasted with only visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and to the fourth generation. Have you thought about that? The way, if you'll look at how the one swallows up the other. So God is infallibly committed to do marvelous things for his people. That's the first point as he renews the covenant. Secondly, his work is on full display. Back in March, we spent a week in a 14th floor condo on the Atlantic Ocean at Myrtle Beach. And every morning at the exact same time, maybe each day a minute sooner, the sun came up in full display, in unmistakable light and transcendence to the east. So that all you could see was sky and that sun coming up, peeking up above the curvature of the earth and the waters of the Atlantic. It was unmistakable. That's like God's work. The nations among whom the children of Israel would be found will know that what God is doing is the work of Yahweh, the one true God, by virtue of the awesome thing that He would do for His people. And I want you to notice that, verse 10. He's using the expression, an awesome thing, to stand for all the awesome works of God. As He took them out of Egypt, He will bring them into the promised land. It's impossible for any one of his words to fail. And so that word thing, at the end of verse 10, it represents all that Yahweh would do as he superintends 40 long, arduous, toilsome years from Sinai into the promised land in fulfillment of all his good promises. Do you labor? Let me ask you as an application question. Do you labor to have a grip on your trials, your difficulties, your challenges, your bumps, to have them swallowed up by all the good things that God has done for you? Do you have the spirit of Mary at the end of Luke 2 when Jesus says that in contrast to Martha, She chose the better part to sit at the feet of Jesus. Do you put everything in contrast to that? There's a third thing. Not only is he infallibly committed to do marvelous things for his people. Not only is his work on full display. But thirdly, he's jealous for his own glory and worship. If you never knew it, one of God's name is Jealous. God would do his part of the covenant. After all, it is his covenant. And he says, behold, I will drive out before you. And he lists the nations there. It's a repeat of the first three verses of chapter 33. Now they must do their part. It is in covenantal terms. He says, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Right? Don't worship their gods. Don't eat the food offered to their idols. Don't be in such proximity to them that you marry their daughters, or your sons marry, or, or your daughters marry their sons. What are they to do? And it's not subtle. Look, at, it's not subtle at all. Look what he says. Take care. You shall tear down. You might remember like President Reagan's call. In his speech to Mikhail Gorbachev about the wall of Berlin, tear down this wall. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Any vestige, any particle, any attachment or devotion or attachment of devotion to any other God but the one true God who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of slavery, he says, is to be demolished. Here's a question. Are you ruthless to demolish the idols of your heart that John Calvin says is a continuous idol factory? Or do you play? Don't toy with sin. Sin's not a kitty. Kids, sin is not a kitten. Sin is a full-grown lion. And it will destroy you. Are you tempted to lie? Are you tempted to resist mom's call? Dad's word to obey? Don't play with sin. Put it to death. Paul says, if by the Spirit we were putting to death the deeds of the body, we will live. It's the reason that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, we destroy arguments. He doesn't say we entertain arguments. He says we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Then why such an insertion? Why? It is in terms of the first commandment. You shall worship no other god Besides me, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. His love is beyond description, but so is the devotion that He requires. And that's His very name. It's jealous. It should remind us, brothers and sisters, it reminds us. That God wants all of us, that his lordship extends to every nook and cranny of your life. Some of you know the quote by Abraham Kuyper, that great Dutch theologian and statesman that says there is no square inch in all creation that the Lord Jesus Christ as the firstborn of all creation, as the firstborn of the dead, as the firstborn of many brothers has not staked his claim and says I've got title to it. And so it is with your heart, with your mouth, with your sexuality, with the, day, with the way you steward a day's work, with your time, with your body, with what you read, with the affections that you are either nurturing or you're putting to death because they're not good affections, the stirrings of your heart. Let me ask you this, what idol, what pillar, what asherum do you need to level with the sledgehammer of the Spirit in obedience to the Lord Jesus? I dare you, men, today is Father's Day and you're looking to be stroked and appreciated. Fine, enjoy it. But tomorrow, ask your wife, or if you're not married, ask a good friend, what idols do you see in my life that I need to put to death? What do I need to do? Third, Yahweh's commands are repeated. It's verses 17 through 28. So now, not only has God's character been revealed, not only is the covenant renewed, but His commands are repeated. And when I say His commands are repeated, I don't mean exhaustively, but selectively. There's a recall, recall of some of the first table of that moral law from chapter 20, the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And then portions of the ceremonial law from chapter 23, verses 10 through 19. His covenant was not void of command, and that's an important principle. His relationship relationship with his people was regulated by his word and words. And this is true of us also as his new covenant people. And children, I want, I want to make this applicable to your obedience with mom and dad. When mom and dad give you the word, something as simple as come here now, take three more bites, clean up your room, it is not a biblical response to roll your eyes in response to their words. All right? That's plain disobedience. Our relationship, God's relationship with his people is regulated by his word. It's true of us also as as his new covenant people. He doesn't save us from sin to then remain in it. But he saves us from sin to walk in a new creation, Christ-abiding, Spirit-indwelling, God-exalting obedience. And when we as a church family, not in a uniform way, but in a united way, Embrace that as God's vision for us as his people. What a day that will be here at Grace Baptist Church Taylor's. That was Paul's point in Romans 6 verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do not dare reduce biblical Christianity to something like this. Let go and let God. All right? Yes, you may rest but you actively rest. You may rest, but you exert yourself. All right? Do not dispense with law in the name of the gospel. There's always word and spirit. There's always law and gospel, and we must understand the relationship there. So two categories here, moral law and then ceremonial. Just briefly from this section, verses 17 through 28. He says, he gives us the second commandment again. In effect... In shortened form, you should not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. That's from Exodus 20, verse 4. Here's the undeniable indictment on the golden calf debacle. Nothing on those two tablets, on those ten words in Exodus 20, beckoned Yahweh's judgment quite like fabrication of an idol as a substitute for God's true worship. You see also the third commandment. It's actually implied there in verse 14. His name is jealous. And therefore, we must not use it in vain, trivially, meaninglessly. We mention the names of our old girlfriends at threat of death, right? Okay? Or boyfriends. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold you. Him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Look at the fourth commandment there in verse 21 of chapter 34. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest. Think about that. He knows us, doesn't he? It's like studying on the Lord's day. Maybe when you could have studied on Saturday for an exam, you'll have Monday. And not in a legalistic way, but in a way that receives all his goods words for us. He knows us. The psalmist says in Psalm 127 in verse 2, It is vain for you to rise early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. How about the ceremonial law? Just briefly. I think it's sufficient to note from verses 18 to 26 that you have much from chapter 23, verses 10 through 19. But to notice that these ceremonial laws, they were temporary. They were serving as sign pointers. They would find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. A brief sample. Think about the feast, the feasts were designed to remind Israel of all that Yahweh had done for them, how he had provided for them even when they were the least of all the nations, even when they were held captive for 400 long years, when the light of the prospects of the promises of God were burning so very dimly and their hope had waned. So three times a year they were to go up, they were to commemorate God's care for them, his acts on their behalf. Just like we're about to take the Lord's Supper, this is where the gospel is dramatized as one of two ordinances between baptism and communion. So it is here for us. That was the point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of the Ingathering. And notice in verse 24, if you've ever seen this, he says, speaking of their attendance on these feasts, he says, no one will covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. He's speaking to their obedience and he's speaking to his protection for them. How about this? He would protect their land when they observed his feast. And I want to apply this here right now and hear me very carefully when I express this. God is always your sentinel guard at the most dangerous and scary place of your obedience to Jesus. God is always your sentinel guard at the most scary and dangerous place of your obedience to Jesus. Whatever you know you need to do before the Lord in obedience to him as your Lord under the lordship of Christ. Whatever you need to do in terms of obedience or repentance, God is your sentinel guard at the most scary place. You may go up, as the children of Israel could go up three times a year and not worry about their land to observe the feast, so God will go with you in your repentance. There's a second thing, and that is that there's God's claim on the firstborn son. See it in verse 19. It's his telegraph to us that as he required that of Israel, so he gave his one and only, his firstborn son to the world. It's not Nicodemus, but it's Jesus saying to Nicodemus in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son. It points to the beloved of the father. It points to the firstborn Son, The firstborn of all creations from Colossians 1.15. The firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18. And the firstborn from among many brothers. There's a final point as we look at our passage. And that is Yahweh's servant is foreshadowed. And I want to just close briefly this morning. If you'll put your eyes there on verses 29 through 35. This time Moses was the scribe on the new set of tablets of the covenant. What we call... The Ten Commandments. I think it's ironic, if, if I might note this for a moment, that in verse one, the Lord says, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. So God says, I will write them. Now I want you to notice then, though when you look here in verse, in this section, that when he came down, right? Right? In verse 27, he's just said, write these words. God says, I will write them. And then he turns around and gives this assignment to Moses so that the two obscure into one. Whether, and it shows a sense of God's divine responsibility, sovereignty, or his sovereignty and our responsibility coming together. So that at times, we ought to notice that God is saying he'll do something, When in fact we need to take a step and do that something that he says he'll do. Think about this. Forty days and forty nights with no bread and no water. They conveyed that this renewal of the covenant was a momentous event. Don't miss that. The second time. Moses coming down the mountain points us to the Lord Jesus as the true and better Moses. Who came down to make the Father known to us you want to know the mountains of Jesus don't miss them know the mountains of Jesus he preached his greatest sermon we call it the sermon on the mount he was blessed and honored as the beloved son on the mount of transfiguration who deserved all our worship It was on Mount Calvary that he bore in his body the wounds that we deserved for our sin and his blood spilt on the ground for us. And it was in the mount, the very end of the book of Matthew, that gave us as his church our marching orders until he comes. He is the true and better Moses who's come to make the Father known to us. But there's a difference, and Paul alludes to it in 2 Corinthians 3. That now we with unveiled face might know Him. That we might see Him in the sense of knowing Him with unveiled faces. And might be beholding the glory of the Lord. You remember You remember Moses' request. Please, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I'm going to make all my glory pass before you. And I'm going to proclaim my name, the Lord, while I protect you in the cleft of the rock. But we have something more. We don't just have the self-speech of God in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. We don't just have the completed canon of 66 books together that give the full message of the gospel. But we have Christ himself. We have the fullness of the Father. And you may see him if you are in him. And if you are in him, you will be transformed into that same image. You know that God that's described in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, Paul says, you, if you're in Christ, are being transformed into the same image of one so lovely, of one who is merciful and gracious, of one who is slow to anger, of one who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy, Of one who was willing to show steadfast love or keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Of one who is so pure in holiness that by no means would he clear the guilty, yet he is willing to do so in Christ because he became sin for us. Brothers, sisters, if you're not a Christian, this is great news. It's the very best news of all. And so to him, to the one who in his own words has told you who he is, I say, let's come. We're going to have communion now. Could I ask the men who are serving to come forward?